Week two, my friends, of Creed, where we are working on knowing what it is that we say we believe. And to do that, we've been unpacking at some depth the oldest creed, the most ancient shared statement of faith in the Christian church. You've heard of it as the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed, it emerged in the first few centuries following the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and it was birthed then for the same reason that it's needed today, to do, well, a few things, to define truth, to correct error, to connect us to the faith of our fathers, to summarize that faith, and then to define Christian unity, the principles upon which we as followers of Jesus can unite. Now, we're doing this together because I believe right now, more than I've seen in any other time in my life as a believer of Jesus, I believe that followers of Jesus are being lied to, deceived, led astray, and that we're being used to further agendas and causes that are anybody's but Christ's. It was the Apostle Paul's prayer that we would mature in our faith and our unity and our knowledge because, well, he said, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by, listen to this now, the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. People and parties, politicians, pollsters, they're scheming on Main Street and Madison Avenue to use your faith so they can use you. Now last week, we got started with the two most important words in the creed itself. Those words, I believe. In fact, that's actually what the word creed means. And we looked at what it means to believe something. Not just mere mental accedence to a fact or knowledge regarding an event, but this heart-level trust. In a way, you're giving yourself fully to a belief in such completeness that the belief impacts the way you live. I know about George Washington, but I believe in Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? Belief in the Christian faith is unique because belief, faith in Jesus and his life and death and resurrection, belief is what, according to the writers of the Bible, belief is what saves us, what justifies us before God, what regenerates us and transforms us from death to life. Not our good works, not our deeds, not our sacrifices, which some would argue, some have thought, earn something. But no, 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 what we believe is what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross, where he, in his innocence, chose to accept the punishment due our sin. The creed at its heart is different than any other religious statement of belief, because all others start with, here's what you have to do. Ours starts with, here's what God's already done. We say we believe, we have to believe. And we also looked at the God in which we've placed this belief, that he is God Almighty, all right. Most religions have a God Almighty, but ours is different. He is, he describes himself as God the Father Almighty. He is powerful, but he is just as personal. Now, if you missed last week, I want you to go back and check it out. But this week, we're moving on to the next part of our joint confession. And before we do, though, I'm going to ask you to join me in reciting the creed together again. Here we go. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, 
born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and he sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This week, with line two, we pick up the central person of the creed. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord. And with that, once again, we state something about the Christian God, the God in which we believe and trust, which is completely unique from all other gods. We believe that our God is a triune God, meaning that our God is one God who exists in the form of three co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we're going to tackle that concept as best as one can tackle that concept, later in the creed. But this morning, this morning the creed introduces us to the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Now, calling him the second person, we don't mean in order of authority, but we mean in order of revelation. We believe, we put our trust in Jesus Christ. The creed actually, right there in, in that second sentence, it gives us three titles for Jesus. Did you catch them? You might have seen the second which was God's only son. Jesus was his only son, God's only son. The third was that Jesus is our Lord. Did you catch the first one? It was Christ. Christ, and I I mean, how would you know unless somebody teaches you? Christ was not Jesus' surname. In the first century in Israel, people didn't have last names. We don't know what Jesus' would have been. In those days, people, especially people with common names, and Jesus was a common name, Many were identified uh, by who their father was. Think about it. If you know some of the stories of the Scripture, the Scripture tells us of Levi, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the son of Zebedee. Others were identified by their hometown. Jesus was often identified this way, Jesus of Nazareth. Still others were distinguished from people with the same name by use of a nickname. For example, two of Jesus' disciples were named Simon. Jesus gave one the nickname Peter, And the Bible distinguishes the other as Simon the Zealot. So when we say that we believe in Jesus Christ, we're saying we believe that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is a title. It's the transliterated form of a Greek word meaning the anointed one. Jesus the anointed one or Jesus the chosen one. The Hebrew equivalent of the word, the source word there is Messiah. When the creed refers to Jesus Christ, it's saying that Jesus is the chosen one of God. Now, there's a pretty famous story in the Bible where you see two of these titles applied to Jesus, and it's in response to, well, to the one eternal question, the one the creed is attempting to answer in its second line. Matthew records the interaction. Jesus comes into a region, and it's important that you know the region. That's why they wrote it down. Caesarea Philippi. And he asks his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus says to his friends, hey guys, who do people say that I am? What are they talking about me? Uh, What are they saying about me? A question that I personally do not have the self-confidence and the assurance to ask any of my friends. But Jesus is wholly different. They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus looks at them and goes, 
But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And there it is, guys. That is the great and eternal question, right? It's the profoundly personal question that each of us has to answer, not only with our mouths, but in our hearts. And here it is. Simon Peter answered from his heart. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, at this point, almost everybody, almost every religion has an answer to Jesus' question about who he is. Very few, almost no serious scholars reject the historicity of the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, for example, is revered in the Muslim faith. He's recognized in the Quran as Isa, son of Mary. They consider Jesus, too, to be born of a virgin, that he performed miracles, he had disciples, and that he was rejected by the Jewish establishment. They believe Jesus to be the penultimate prophet sent by God to earth. The Jewish faith today, they believe Jesus to be one of a long line of false messiahs who have showed up over the centuries to lead people astray. Hinduism, is, it's a very diverse religious faith, and it has many ideas about Jesus. Most believing him to be a holy man, a wise teacher. Some sects believing that he's, he's one of the many divine reincarnated gods. Buddhists believe that Jesus was a wise man, an enlightened man. Agnostics, right, many of our friends, they see, they see him in many of those same ways. Atheists, at this point, they just see Jesus as a historical figure with few assumptions regarding if he was good or bad. Look, and you know this, for many, many people who claim the Christian faith is their own, for many, Jesus is often seen more as a co-pilot in life, somebody to pray to who will help us get what it is we need or want out of this life. Or maybe somebody that provides fire insurance for us in the next life so that when we die, we go to heaven. For many Christians, Jesus is, well, he's like an add-on, kind of like a genie in a bottle. The creed, the creed says he's anything but. The creed proclaims something different than everybody else, that Jesus is not a good man or a good teacher, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the sent one, the chosen one, the very Son of God. In fact, that too is what Peter proclaimed, and he proclaimed it in a very interesting place. Jesus asked the disciples the eternal question in the city, did you catch it, of Caesarea Philippi. Now, that was an ancient Roman city located at the base of Mount Hermon. If you wanted to go see it now, you could. It's no longer a city, but it does exist as an archaeological site in the Golan Heights. When Peter makes his declaration, it's where he makes it that makes it so stunning. Caesarea Philippi was actually renamed Caesarea Philippi to honor Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor. And it was the city where Herod, Caesar, one of the Caesars, built a temple to honor Augustus. Now, before it was Caesarea Philippi, the city was known as Panius, named for the Greek god Pan, who also had a temple in the city. The Caesars had a temple, Pan had a temple. And by the way, pantheism still exists today. This creed would push back on it. 
Pantheism is the belief, and you probably have some friends that believe this, that God is in everything, in all of nature, and that everything in all of creation is, in a sense, God. And so in the shadow of these temples, in the midst of the Roman Empire, a brutal, violent, ruthless regime, which ruled the world, the known world, from Britain to India, Peter makes a bold declaration. He says, I believe that you are the Messiah, the one true God, the king over Rome, over the Caesars, over Pan, and over all other gods. Peter makes a statement of elevation about who Jesus was, and it's a statement of rejection of the powers of this world and of the powers of other worlds, of other gods. It was bold, it was powerful, it was brave. Peter is saying right in the heart of of Roman power, he goes, you are king of everything. You rule and you reign over all of it. The second thing, after after the creed says that Jesus, Jesus is the Christ, the second and third thing it affirms is that Jesus is the Son of God and that he's Lord. It's speaking of his divinity, that he is God, and it's speaking of his authority, that he is Lord. It's speaking of his power and his position. And some of us today still struggle with that concept. Jesus' power and Jesus' position. For for some of us, we're good with Jesus' power. In fact, we're thankful for it. We want to tap into it for all we can. Most of our relationship with Jesus is based off of his power and what his power can do for us or what he can get for us. Now, a good indicator that this might be the kind of unbalanced relationship you've fallen into with Jesus is if your prayers almost always just, it's just a list of things that you're asking for. I think this is true of a lot of us. Now, they might not be bad things. They might not even be selfish things. But, but work on this with me. If your prayers are just lists of, and Lord, would you, Lord, could you, then you might just be seeing Jesus mostly as, uh, excuse me, you might see Jesus mostly for his power. You worship him for his power, but you have not yielded to his position as Lord of your life. See, when you yield that way, those, those, those prayers sound different. See, those prayers start with things like, Lord, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Whom can I serve in your name? Who can I love like you loved me? And who can I forgive like you've forgiven me? See the difference there? Now, for others of us, we're so attuned to Jesus' position that he's Lord, it's hard for us to see that his power has already been leveraged for us on our behalf. We run around so guilt-ridden or downtrodden, worried that God is angry with us or disappointed in us, that he's about to give us what we feel we deserve. We forget that Jesus came not to be served. He didn't use his power to glorify himself, but to serve and to serve, this is crazy, to serve us, to serve us and to give his life as a ransom for us. Friends, the punishment we walk around feeling like we deserve or do, he already took on our behalf. You see, he is the Christ, the Messiah, our Savior. Just like we need to hold our view of God in the tension that God is both Almighty God 
and Father God. We have to hold Jesus' power and position in that same tension. He is Lord and Messiah. He is King and He's Savior. Now, the last part of, of, of this. It's so important. You know how I always say that you need to enter the story? That when you read the Scripture, you shouldn't just read it, but you should enter it. Understand what's happening. Place yourself there. Get all the feels of what's happening, if you know what I mean. All right, so the creed, the creed says that Jesus is the Christ. That's his title. He's the long-prophesied, long-awaited-for Messiah. He is the Savior. And it says he's the Son of God and Lord. These are titles. This revelation of who Jesus is. Now, for you and I, it might be a little tired. We've heard it a thousand times. But this revelation, especially those last two parts, Son of God and Lord, well, for the early church, it had powerful implications in their day and for their lives. And guys, I think if we understood it the way they understood it, well, I think it could still have that same power in our day and for our lives, our homes, our town. Let me explain. In the first century, the terms Son of God and Lord were loaded terms. And that's because, as we've been discovering, Jesus had, and I'm going to argue at the end of this that he still has, competitors for that title and that throne. The, book of the, New, the books of the New Testament were written. The lives of its writers, Paul, Peter, James, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were all lived under the Roman Empire's rule. And the rulers of Rome, known as the Caesars, were the ones that were competing for those titles, Son of God, Lord. And they were serious about the competition. The first Roman emperor, Julius Caesar, he led the Roman Empire until around 44 BC. And he's followed by his adopted son, and a much less impressive son, Augustus Caesar. Only 19 years old at the time of his father's death, Octavian, as he was known, was not given much consideration by the people or the established power structure on the account of his age and his less distinguished background. So it was a stroke of massive good fortune for Octavian that just a couple of months after Caesar's death, a comet appeared in the sky above Rome and it shone for seven straight days during funeral games that were held in Caesar's honor. Records in both Rome and China describe it as being one of the brightest comets ever seen on Earth. You can do the research on this. It's called Caesar's Comet at Home. Check it out. Scientists are still talking about it. Now, it was the media believed that Caesar must have been truly descended from Venus because that's something he claimed throughout his life. It was thought that the comet was Caesar's soul returning to the heavens to join the gods. Well, after this, I mean, Augustus jumped on that bandwagon. He popularized a phrase among the people. He would say, I saw the Son of God ascended, ascending to the right hand of God the Father. A claim about position that may sound a little familiar to you. And so, in terms of Augustus, if Julius Caesar is divine, if he, if he is as he claimed to be a god, then that would make Caesar Augustus, well, that would make him the son of God. And it was a claim he would spread throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, it was a claim that be, he began to have referred to as the gospel of Caesar, the good news 
of the Caesar. And the good news, Caesar's good news, was that everybody who would obey, everybody who would listen and do what Caesar Augustus had said to do, the good news was this. Caesar Augustus has been sent by God to earth to proclaim that he's the son of God, God incarnate, and his job is to bring about universal peace and prosperity. That was the gospel of Rome. And you can look this up. It's called the Pax Romana. It's quite famous. Peace through Rome. Or as we know it today, really not much different, peace through strength. Everybody, listen, relax, trust in Rome and its strength for peace and prosperity and comfort. Sound familiar? It should, but again, it goes so much deeper. You see, when Augustus took the throne from his father, he, 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 he instituted a celebration of his divinity, his arrival on the throne, and he held a 12-day celebration called the Advent. Hymns were written and sung about Augustus and the peace and the prosperity that this new Caesar would bring. In fact, there were actually coins minted to this effect. Here's a picture of one. And on one side, you can see Augustus's face. And on the other, a comet, right? And you know now the story there. That was his claim to divinity. His son would actually have a coin made. Augustus' son would have a coin made with his image on the back. And the inscription said, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. This is how deep this concept was in the culture. In fact, when Pax Romana was declared in a town, posts, uh, uh, posts would be nailed up around the, uh, the area. And on it, it would declare Pax Romana, and it would say, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved, save for Augustus. Does any of this sound familiar? But it gets deeper. See, in the empire, the way that you would show your allegiance to the Caesar was through sacrifices. He instituted a sacrificial system. And your sacrifice to Caesar, well, it was a pinch of incense. That's what would keep you right. That's what would keep you under the covering and the protection and the safety of Rome. But... It was just about this time during the reign of, of Pax Romana and the Caesars that a little band of followers of this Judean rabbi on the eastern outskirts of the Roman Empire began to make some noise. They began to make very similar claims about their rabbi. This rabbi, the one they, they made claims about, they made even bolder ones. They said that unlike the Caesars, his kingdom, his reign would not end because unlike the Caesars, this rabbi, a man they described as Jesus the Christ, was alive, that he overcame death. They would make claims, Paul would make claims that hundreds and hundreds of people, they were all showing up and they were saying, yeah, it's crazy, but we saw him. We saw the Caesars, Romans, put him to death. We saw him die, and then three days later, we saw him alive. And our Jesus, he too has a gospel and a kingdom. Now, around 81 AD, give or take around 45 years after Jesus was crucified, one of the most evil, horrific, narcissistic Caesars rises to power in Rome. 
Caesar Domitian. Again, a man who demanded that he be seen as God on earth. Another son of God who demanded uh, the empire's worship. In fact, he was so full of this and himself, wherever he went, a choir would go before him and behind him, and they would sing about our Lord and God. Caesar, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. Domitian, he, he killed anybody who stood against him. It's thought he actually killed his own brother to ensure his own power. And it wasn't just individuals. There was an entire people group that one time offended him, and he just simply had them wiped out. You getting the picture of this guy? Now, Domitian's kind of hallmark was what he, he started something called the Capitoline Games. They're, they were these arena games, kind of an Olympic contest, comprising athletic displays, chariot racing, competitions for music and acting. And everybody who went to them was required, while they were there, to be seen in white togas. But... Before the games would begin, the priests would do what the priests always do. 24 of them would get up and lead the choir in singing and worship of Domitian. The entire arena, 50, 60,000 people would sing his praises. Here's a statue of Domitian. You'll see that, and you see this in a lot of the, the pictures of the Caesars, he has a scroll in his hand. The scrolls in the hand of Roman empires, they were just another display of their power. They were said to contain all of the authority of the emperor. He was holding it. A popular saying at the time was that only the emperor was worthy to open the scroll. So not surprisingly, scrolls show up in many of the statues of these Roman emperors. Now, sometime between 77 and 81, Domitian had a, a, an infant son that died and never one to miss an opportunity to buttress his power. He, he had fashioned the legacy of his deceased son into a god. And like Augustus, he used coins for that purpose. These coins portrayed his son sitting on the earth and holding seven stars in his hands. Also, like Augustus, Domitian got some mileage out of the son of God idea. Only this time, now he was the father and his son was the son of God. Domitian goes and he, he establishes a city you've likely heard of if you've been around the church for a while, the city of Ephesus, where Jesus' disciple John lived. And he establishes Ephesus as his personal worship center. You would enter the port of Ephesus and you would be greeted by a massive 25-foot statue of Domitian. We actually have this statue today. Here's a normal human being standing next to what remains of it, just to give you some context. Next, as you came into the city from the port, you, you would see a massive temple, and each of the columns would be depicting the gods of the Roman pantheon. But on top of all these columns was a statue of who else? Domitian. Because he sat on the backs, he ruled over all other gods. Once you came and, and you went to that temple, you would then be ushered into the market area. It was a great market called the Agora. Again, here, here's another picture. You can get a, a sense for the size of it when, it when it was up. It was the market where the trade of the world took place, where the goods and services of the Roman Empire met the goods and services that were available from the East. And Domitian understood their dependence in Ephesus on the Agora. And so he used it to set up yet another display of his power. 
Domitian declared that any person that wanted to do any kind of business in the Agora first had to acknowledge him, Domitian, as God and then make an incense offering to him. Once you'd gone into the market, maybe gone to the temple and made that offering, once you had given an acceptable display of worship, you would receive a mark. Nobody knows for sure what it was. Probably some kind of ink stain maybe on your your hand or your head. And only then could you buy or sell in the Agora. There was only one little problem for Domitian in the city of Ephesus. It was this disciple of this Jewish rabbi named John and this group of followers who would constantly refuse to compromise their faith in Jesus and worship Domitian. When the Romans invited them to place Jesus in the pantheon beside Jupiter, by the side of Juno, by the side of Neptune, by the side of Isis, by the side of of each one of their gods, the Christians flatly refused. It's Christ alone, they would say. When the Christians were, were invited just to bow down before the Roman image, their lives could be spared if they would merely take a pinch of incense and put it on the fire that burned in the presence of the, the image of the Caesar. The Christians were willing to die rather than compromise with a pinch of incense. And they refused in the Agora to take on themselves the mark of the Caesar. They saw the Caesar as one who would set himself up against God, one they, who take, they had taken to calling the beast. Well, this group was probably beginning to cause some ruckus around town, and so scholars believe it's likely that Domitian had their leader, the disciple of Jesus John, sent away to an island called Patmos, thinking, of course, that if their leader was gone, the whole thing would just unwind. I mean, think about it, right? It should have entered the story, right? It's hard to refuse the mark. Imagine that you're a widow and you need to sell your fabric at the market to just provide for your meager existence. Maybe you're a farmer and you need to sell your grain in order to provide for your family and your kids. Maybe if John was gone, Domitian had to be thinking, the widow would give in and the farmer would give up. And so, on that island... It turns out John has an encounter with God. And he writes to this cohort in Ephesus a letter. You know, it's in your Bible. We call it the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. Did you know Revelation had an audience? It's this one. John is writing to these people. And here is what John wrote to these widows and and farmers back in Ephesus. One last point before I get started. One last thing from the historical perspective. Back in Ephesus, there was actually one group of Christians who, while they believed in Jesus, they were willing to compromise their testimony. The worship of Caesar, they would do it, they would take the mark so that they could buy and sell in the Agora. And they would say to the other Christians, look, this isn't a big deal. They, I, we don't think Caesar's God. I, we know Jesus is. But in order to fit in, in order to have what they felt they needed to have, the protection of Rome, right? They felt they had to do it. And so they would encourage the other Christians, just do it. Just, you know, you don't have to believe it. Just do it. And and that was a big division in the city amongst the believers. This sect of Christians in that city uh, was called the the Nicolaitans. Now in Revelation, chapter 2 of this letter that that is, John is writing from, from this island of Patmos, 
he says that God tells him to write to the seven churches in Asia. And some of you know, he goes over with each of those churches the things that he thinks that they're doing right and wrong. Which, by the way, coincidentally, is exactly what Domitian would do with the leaders of his various provinces publicly in front of thousands right before the games. And look what, look what God says here for John to tell the church in Ephesus, the church that, that John is writing to. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Hmm. You, you guys remember the, the story of Domitian's deceased son, who he had depicted on coins with seven stars in his hands? Well, check out what John writes. He goes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. In chapter 4, in chapter 4, John tells the widows and the farmers in Ephesus, he says, After this, I, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and there before me, John says, was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that, that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. And as soon as the Ephesians read this, their minds had to go right to Domitian and his games and the throne that he sat on encircled by his 24 priests leading worship for him. In fact, John goes on, he says, surrounding the throne was 24 other thrones. Of course there were. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed all in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and, and peals of thunder. John tells them that in his vision, this throne is surrounded by four living creatures who, quote, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives, do you catch this over and over, who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will, they were created and have their being. And catch this, John goes on, he goes, and then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth, or Domitian, or under the earth, could open the scroll or even look inside it. John says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed 
he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And John goes, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Listen now. Standing at the center of the throne. He goes on, he says. He went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne and John says that when the Lamb did this, everybody who surrounded the throne sang out a new song. Not Domitian's. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. He goes on, then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise Guys, do you understand what John is writing back to his persecuted friends in Ephesus? Do you know what he's writing to you today? He's saying to all of us, guys, God has shown me the future, the throne of the universe. And Julius and Augustus and Tiberius and Domitian are not on it. Our God is. I heard... One speaker this week put it this way, in light of John's vision, in light of John's vision, don't bow down. Don't give in. Don't give up. The Domitians of this world, they're a fake. He's a phony. It's a fraud. It's a setup. John is saying, I've seen the whole thing, the real thing. All of this is a lie. Don't give up. Don't give in. Don't back down. Don't take their mark. Friends, the mark of the beast, I mean, Christians have misunderstood this for a long time. The mark of the beast is, is not a social security number as it was once thought. It's not a credit card number as it was once thought. And it's not the vaccine. I've seen good-willed Christians believe all those things. Now, I don't know what the coming mark will be, but it has very little to do with the mark, and it has everything to do with your heart. It has to do, what God has always been concerned with is, is what and who you worship. It has to do in whom you believe, in whom you trust, whose kingdom is good news to you? Where do you find your protection and your comfort and security? John is saying, it's not Pax Romana, it's a fraud. It's God. Don't give them your heart. Don't bow down to your Domitians. And the problem is, the, the reason this is still so relevant, the reason God has it in the Bible as the last book, is there are still so many Domitians out there. Rulers and kingdoms and authorities that we're giving our hearts away to, that we're trusting in for our security and our identity and our comfort. Oftentimes, as, as believers, we can fall into the 
the same trap the, the Nicolaitans did. Well, I know it's not a big deal, but everybody's doing it. I mean, it's not like I really believe that, that this is, is, is important. I'm just doing it in order to get by it. I mean, I've got to fit in. Everybody's doing it. Everybody's watching it. Everybody's buying it. Has it. Wears it. Says it. Everybody's cynical. Everybody gossips. Everybody cheats. Everybody lives together. Everybody's having sex. Everybody has credit card debt. Everybody has houses they can't afford. The Domitians of our day, folks, they take many forms. Who's yours? What's yours? John says, John says, get rid of it. Stop worshiping it. Don't bow down anymore. Don't take the sign. Stand up. That's what the creed meant to the early church. Jesus, he is the Messiah. He is the Savior, the Christ, the chosen one of God, and he alone is the, the Son of God the only divine one, and he is Lord, not the Caesars, not your Domitians. Friends, my prayer for you today is that as we recite this creed together over these coming weeks, that you and I would begin to see the Caesars in our own lives for what they are, that we would repent of the places where we have misplaced our trust, and more importantly, where we've misplaced our hearts, and we would stop trusting in all the Pax Romana of our day, the power of Rome, of our own Domitians, and that we'd start believing and living and acting like Jesus is the Christ, the only Son of God and our only Lord.